0: You could like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, F-P-B-P, stand for free the Black Panthers, and up the black police, feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, finna build here, up coin sale pro, show, they got me started, lion hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja First in grooves, Usaba Let's bring back the black families We need our father Single mama, son and daughter That's root of the problem Wise up, we wise up Unity so powerful Black banks, black schools Black on black power moves You tell a lies King Khalid Muhammad We gon' make your day a holiday I fuck oh, me, i mad Free the Black Panthers, F-E-B-P Stand for Free the Black Panthers it's up the Black Police That 13th Amendment Tryna make a slave of me You can like my body, can't trap my mind Not forever ever be free, okay Free the Black Panthers, F-E-B-P Stand for Free the Black Panthers it's up the Black Police Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership rose, But we still here, the build here, Upcoin Tail Pro RBG, R.B.G., 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 R.B.G. Rbg My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, cause that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish stuff. Don't tolerate it, melanated, so you gotta hate it. Barack up up another conversation, Trump finna get inaugurated. Damn, unify or die, NBPP.org Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
1: Welcome everyone, wherever you may be, in whichever time zone, as this is a world event. I am thrilled to introduce this second symposium on reparations under international law for enslavement of Africans in the Americas and the Caribbean. This symposium is a partnership of the American Society of International Law with the University of West Indies Center for Reparation Research. Let me first thank our symposium chair, the Honorable Judge Patrick L. Robinson, esteemed member of the International Court of Justice, an immediate past honorary president of our society. I also would like to thank the brilliant scholars and colleagues who worked on the advisory committee for the symposium, consisting of Professor Farine Shepherd of the University of West Indies, David Eltis Woodruff Professor Emeritus of History at Emory, Professor Robert Beckford of the University of Winchester, and Ms. Priscilla Robinson of Queens Court Chambers in London. Together with my wonderful colleagues in the Society, Natalie Reed, co-chair of Depple Boys and Plimpton's Public International Law Group, and Chantal Thomas of Cornell University Law School, as their role as organizers of this symposium. The impressive first symposium held last May addressed such critical issues as the historical and the social context of transatlantic chattel slavery, its legality or illegality under international law, at the time that it took place and the economic basis for the assessment of reparations. Through it, participants built the case for the illegality of transatlantic chattel slavery under international law. This second symposium builds from the first by bringing together international law scholars and jurists, historians and economists to address the issue of reparations as we will see such reparations can take the form of monetary compensation or satisfaction the first symposium's proceedings are freely available on our website and can be downloaded as an ebook one can also freely view the video of the symposium from the website this symposium is generative dynamic and intellectually rigorous It builds on a legacy of robust scholarship on legal questions related to accountability, repair and moral commitments, post-colonialism and slavery. These matters touch my family's life and are personal to me. The legacy of American slavery etched through Mississippi is the legacy that my formidable wife, the renowned author, activist, and public intellectual, Michelle Goodwin, inherited. We know much too well the cruelties that Mississippi, the most notorious state in the United States, for brutality against Black Americans inflicted on them, both before and after slavery formally ended. Such horrors were made legal by way of sundown laws, Black codes, racial covenants, quote, separate but equal restrictions and coercive contracts on their labor. We bear witness to this. Yet regardless of one's birth or immediate family connections, the legacy of slavery touches all of us. Its reach extends today in racial discrimination across areas of social life, from our healthcare systems to the carceral state, from movements to suppress democracy, to resistance to teaching about our racial history, and thus any reckoning with our past. As William Faulkner wrote, the past is never dead. It is not even past. At ASIL, our governing mission is to convene people to study and assess international law, to examine our past, and to build a better present and future in which international relations are established and maintained on the basis of law and justice. We cannot and we do not segregate our moral concerns, to quote the civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Let me now introduce our partner in this project, Dr. Marie Shepard, Director of the University of the West Indies Center for Reparation Research. Dr. Shepard is a world-renowned historian and one of the Caribbean's preeminent scholars and advocates for gender justice, racial equality and non-discrimination, and reparation for the impact of European colonization on indigenous peoples, Africans and people of African and Asian descent. Dr. Shepherd received her master's and her BA at the University of West Indies and her doctorate at the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom. She is a path-breaking individual. Among her many firsts, she is the first Jamaican and Caricom citizen to be elected to the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, of which she now serves as vice chair. She is currently one of the three vice chairs of the CARICOM Reparations Commission, and she has served as chair and co-chair of the Jamaican National Commission on Reparations. Professor Shepard, it is my honor to turn this second symposium over to you.
2: Thank you very much. Let me greet His Excellency, Patrick Robinson, Judge of the International Court of Justice. And, of course, as you have heard, Honorary President of the American Society of International Law, ASIL. I greet Professor Hilary Beckles, Vice-Chancellor of the University of the West Indies, which turned 75 this year. ASIL President, Professor Gregory Schaefer. Ms. Natalie Reed, Ms. Chandra Thomas, and other ACIL members, members of the Brattle Group, other presenters and the discussants and, and our distinguished audience. Good morning to everyone. On behalf of the Center for Reparation Research, let me say how pleased I am to be involved yet again in a collaborative symposium between ACIL and the University of the West Indies, a collaboration initiated by its honorary president, George Robinson, who in 2020 as the honorary, honorary president of ACEL proposed that the society should convene an international symposium to debate the question of the lawfulness or illegality of transatlantic chattel slavery and collaborate with the University of the West Indies, uh, the UWI. This Second International Symposium on the Quantification of Reparations for Transatlantic chattel Slavery, TCF, is timely, reflective as it does of the current state of scholarly and general public interest and research on the transatlantic trafficking of captured Africans, their chattelization in the West, and the need for acknowledging and repairing the resultant harms whose legacies Are everywhere still to be seen. The UWI is a fitting partner in the second symposium as with the first of course because it has a long tradition of researching the history of the transatlantic trafficking in Africans and the chattel enslavement of Africans through its history departments, its internationally known historians, and other scholars working on decolonization and decolonial justice. Educational institutions, especially universities that believe in decolonial justice are so important. And the UWI has a social justice agenda in its teaching and learning processes and in the production of students and staff who would be scholar activists, even in the late historian Walter Rodney's formulation, guerrilla or some would say maroon intellectuals. It was that strategic imperative demonstrated in teaching and learning at the UWI after its establishment in 1948, which identified it as a university engaged in education for transformation of a people grappling with the diseases of colonialism And its continuing legacies. Historians in particular used their scholarship to critique narratives that needed to be critiqued, created new knowledge, and addressed myths and stereotypes that fed discrimination. In the final analysis, only a history that reverses centuries of myths and stereotypes can restore pride and dignity to Africans and people of African descent. Not surprisingly, The vice chancellor detailed the CRR, the Center for Reparation Research, to be the implementing arm of this collaboration. And we're very happy to be doing so again. And in my case, especially honored to have been asked to serve on Judge Robinson's advisory committee, providing guidance to his student researchers and content for him and the Brattle Group. No calculation, or quantification of the reparation for this crime against humanity can be done with only lawyers and financial scientists. Economic, social, demographic, and quantitative historians are key to that process. And we have been honored to have made our contribution suggesting experts and sources. I look forward to hearing the outcome of the work done so far, and of course, looking forward to how we will together bring reparation to people who are demanding it. And this work will contribute to removing any lingering misgivings that the transatlantic trafficking in Africans and the chattelization of our people were not crimes against humanity. For how can the genocide perpetrated over centuries as shown by so many of our historians locally and internationally, not be a crime against humanity. The findings today will contribute to the global reparation movement and and to the body of knowledge already generated by scholars, which will arm us for the battle ahead in which the Brattle Group will continue to be key. So welcome to everyone on behalf of the Center for Reparation Research and the University of the West Indies. And we look forward to the revelations and the discussions that will emanate from these two days, revelations that will build on the work already done by others, for the debt has not yet been paid. The account has not been settled, as that reparation warrior, Dudley Thompson, famously said. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you very much, Professor Shepard, and good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. My name is Natalie Reed, and I have the pleasure and privilege of serving as one of the organizers for both the first and the second symposium on reparation under international law. I also have the honor of providing a very brief introduction to a gentleman who leads very little introduction at all, uh, Judge Patrick Lipton Robinson, who is a member of the International Court of Justice, and I believe we shall now give you the title, sir, of Honorary President Emeritus of the American Society of International Law. As you have heard from uh, our colleagues and previous speakers, Judge Robinson has been uh, the driving force, um, both uh, as a matter of personal and academic passion, but also, of course, as a thought leader in this project. Judge Robinson has dedicated literally decades of his life to public service, first on behalf of the people of Jamaica, and now as a leading member of the international community with decades of judicial service at the highest level. We will begin hearing from Judge Robinson this morning with opening remarks. And then he will, again, grace us with uh, a discussion later on this morning in laying out the legal framework that has given the shape for the project uh, undertaken for purposes of this second symposium. Judge Robinson, you have the floor.
4: Thank you very much,
5: Natalie. I'd like to reiterate the warm welcome extended to all of you by Professor Verine Shepard, The International Symposium is streamed to all parts of the world, and wherever you are, please accept my gratitude for your interest. Ladies and gentlemen, it is right that the eyes of the world should be focused on this symposium because the question of reparations for transatlantic chattel slavery, which I will call TCS hereafter, affects not only the descendants of enslaved Africans and the European countries, which engaged in this sordid and grotesque practice for well over 450 years. The chattelization of Africans impacts our common humanity and obliges us to put in place a system for the payment of reparations to the descendants of the enslaved in
4: accordance with international law.
5: As you know, the International Symposium that was held in 2021 concluded that
4: on the basis of the law at that time, PCS
5: was unlawful. As a result of this finding, international law now requires the payment of full reparations for the wrongful conduct involved in carrying out. Consequently, there is an international obligation on the United Kingdom, France, Portugal, Spain, the Netherlands, Sweden, Denmark, and the United States of America to make full reparations to the descendants of those Africans whom they enslaved. But ladies and gentlemen, it cannot be left to those former slaveholding states to determine the reparations that are to be paid.
4: To do so would be to allow the
5: wrongdoing state to determine the sum due for reparations and thus, in a real sense, to perpetuate the mistreatment of the enslaved Africans and their descendants. In my own country, Jamaica, there are situations in which a worker may do a small job for a person which does not call for the payment of a large sum of money. When that person asks the worker the cost of the job, the worker
4: will say, Give me a money,
5: meaning that since the sum is small, it is left to the discretion of the person to determine how much is to be paid to the worker. Ladies and gentlemen, I make it plain that reparations are not about former slave-holding countries giving a money to the descendants of the enslaved Africans. There must be a system whereby full reparations are determined in accordance with international law. This symposium on the quantification of reparations will provide such a system. It will produce a table which names all the countries in which PCS was carried out and it will settle the reparations that are to be paid by a particular former slaveholding state to the descendants of the enslaved in those countries. The symposium is fortunate to have the services of a highly recognized and distinguished group of valuators, the Brattle Group. They have placed a value on the several injuries or harms caused by TCS. This table is global in that it covers transatlantic chattel slavery in all the countries in which it was carried out, whether in the Caribbean, in Central America, in South America, or in North America. It is global and not parochial because we, who are descendants of the enslaved, all came to these parts on the same boat. Ladies and gentlemen, since the damage caused by TCS will not be made good by restitution and compensation, the law requires that what it calls satisfaction must be given. The International Law Commission tells us that satisfaction may take the form of an expression of regret, a formal apology, or some other appropriate modality. In my view, in the case of TCS, satisfaction is as important as, or even more important than compensation. Much of the harm resulting from TCS cannot be remitted by cash payments. Perhaps the greatest harm caused by TCS is the psychological damage that it visited on enslaved Africans and their descendants. I now wish to say a few words about two important developments that have taken place since the first symposium. On the 19th of December, 2022, the Dutch Prime Minister gave what can only be described as a full apology for his country's involvement in TCS. He described it as a crime against humanity and characterized his country's role in TCS as downright shameful. He commented on the administrative system that was set up by the Dutch to conduct PCS and noted that when practice was abolished in 1863, it was not the enslaved Africans who received compensation, but the slave owners. But for me, perhaps his most consequential statement was that he had for long been of the view that his country could not take responsibility for something that had happened so long ago. But he now acknowledged that his country does have responsibility for the suffering inflicted upon the enslaved and their descendants. Consequently, for him,
4: and I quote him, the Dutch cannot ignore
5: the effects of the past and the present, end of quotation. Acknowledging that the Dutch state profited from TCS, he promised that his apology was not a full stop,
4: but a comma.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, in describing slavery as a crime against humanity, the Dutch prime minister echoed a similar assertion contained in the 2001 Durban Declaration at the World Conference Against Racism.
4: That declaration stated that slavery
5: and the slave trade are a crime against humanity and should always have been so. The concept of crimes against humanity, as you know, emerged out of the Second World War in relation to Germany's treatment of its Jewish citizens. PCS lasted from mid-15th century onto the latter part of the 19th century. Now, of course, norm creating principles of humanity have existed from time immemorial.
4: Indeed, the international
5: Court of Justice itself spoke of what it called the elementary considerations of humanity, even more exacting in peace than in war. This was in its Corfu Channel Judgment. And the 1815 Vienna Declaration on the Abolition of the Slave Trade recognized that Here I quote, the slave trade has been considered by just and enlightened men of all ages as repugnant to the principles of humanity and morality, end of quote. There is, therefore, a legal foundation for the Durban Declaration statement that PCS is and should always have been a crime against humanity. And for that reason, there is justification for what appears to be the Dutch Prime Minister's embrace of that declaration. Ladies and gentlemen, while the Dutch apology is not opposable to other former slaveholding states, it is beyond question that every statement made by the Greek Prime Minister is equally true of the United Kingdom, of France, of Spain, of Portugal, and the other former slave holding states. There is indeed a parallelism between the Dutch and the United Kingdom. In the same way that the Dutch, as acknowledged by the Prime Minister, set up slave trading bodies, so did Britain. In the same way that the Dutch, as acknowledged by the Prime Minister, compensated slave owners, but did not compensate the enslaved, so did Britain. For years, the traditional response of the United Kingdom to claims of reparations has been that TCS happened a long time ago, and the descendants should not look back but forward, and in any event, TCS was lawful conduct. But in light of the Dutch apology, how can the United Kingdom and other former slaveholding states ignore what the Dutch Prime Minister calls the effects of the past on the present and continue to argue that TCS was lawful? It will be observed that there is a difference between the International Law Commission's articles on state responsibility, and the Dutch in the treatment of an apology. In the former, an apology is a form of satisfaction that is required when restitution and compensation do not make good the damage or harm resulting from wrongful conduct. In that sequence, the apology which, post-dates the wrongful conduct, is an acknowledgement of that conduct. However, in the Prime Minister's statement, the apology has come first. To be followed by compensation is the common, not full-stop imagery used by the Prime Minister means anything. In this sequence, there is also the implication that PCS was unlawful conduct, particularly in light of the chronicling by the Prime Minister of a myriad of acts, branding the faces of the enslaved with without irons, hacking off their limbs, and the torturing that he clearly viewed as unlawful. Ladies and gentlemen, I now invite the Dutch to write a full stop by making reparations on the basis set out in the table produced by the
4: symposium. I turn now to the second
5: development, and that was the decision of the Church of England to commit £100 million to a fund to compensate for its historical benefits. From TCS, part of the origins of the Church of England's Perpetual Endowment Fund is the Queen Anne's Bounty, founded in 1704. The bounty invested in assets linked to the South Sea Company itself founded in 1711 to trade in transatlantic chattel slavery. Ladies and gentlemen, although this Church of England initiative may be well-intentioned, in my view, it presents all the problems of a reparation scheme which is crafted entirely by the wrongdoers or those representing them. The report shows that the Church of England, through the Queen Anne's bounty, had annuities, and investments in the South Sea Company in the excess of 1.5 million pounds, which is equivalent to 1.4 billion pounds in today's money. It is therefore clear
4: that when the Anglican church
5: sets aside 100 million pounds for the benefit of the descendants of the enslaved, a figure that is less than 1% of the income it derived from TCS, it was merely in Jamaican parlance giving them a money, which is not how a scheme for reparations should operate. I trust that in avoiding the term reparations to describe the projects it is undertaking, the church is not shying away from this term because it would suggest that TCS was wrong for conduct. The report does show the church
4: to be highly critical of TCS, describing it as a shameful and horrific sin. I would hope that there is no doubt in the mind of the Church of England that TCS was an unlawful
5: practice, and that the work that it is now undertaking constitutes reparations for that practice. And ladies and gentlemen, I will now tell you um, briefly about the program for the symposium. Uh, Today, we will hear from uh, Sir Hilary Beckles, Vice Chancellor of the University of the West Indies, which, as you have heard, in collaboration with the American Society, of international law has convened the symposium. Sir Hillary will give the keynote address. I will make a presentation on the legal framework for reparations for TCS. Thereafter, the Brattle group of evaluators will present their report on the quantification of reparations. And this will be followed by a group of discussants who will comment on the Brackley report. On Friday, that's tomorrow, the symposium will continue with another group of discussants reacting to the report. I thank you. Those are my opening remarks. The next speaker, as I just indicated, is Sir Hilary Becker.
4: Professor Sir Hilary
5: Beckins is the eighth vice chancellor of the University of the West Indies. He's a distinguished academic, international thought leader, United Nations Committee official, and global public activist in the field of social justice. He received his higher education in the United Kingdom and is professor of economic history. He has published well over 100 peer-reviewed essays in scholarly journals and over 13 books on subjects ranging from Atlantic and Caribbean history, gender relations in the Caribbean, sport development,
4: and popular culture. Sir Hilary
5: is president of Universities Caribbean, chairman of the Caribbean Examinations Council, and chairman of the CARICOM Reparations Commission. Sir Hillary,
4: you now have the floor. Thank you. Judge Robinson, Sir Hillary hasn't
5: joined the Zoom yet. So we... um, we will wait for him to join. He's expected to join
3: now. Uh, we are currently running uh, about 15 minutes early, which is a little ah, bit of But I um, But I have, I have alerted uh, Sir Hilary's staff that we are ready for him ahead of schedule. So we'll hope that he will join as soon as possible.
5: Well, we will just um, exercise some patience. Remember, we were told when we were young that patience is a
3: is a virtue. And, and we will hope to be exceedingly virtuous, okay. mm. In the interim, while we wait for Sir Hilary to join, just an organizational note um, that for anyone who is watching, uh, as we did for the first symposium, uh, short biographical blurbs of all of the speakers, uh, are available from the web page on which this is being streamed and uh, at the end of the symposium the formal report prepared by uh, the Brattle team will be available uh, for download and reviewing. I see that Sir Hilary has joined us. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, we are uh, unusually ahead of schedule so we are grateful that you can uh, join us even though we are starting a little bit earlier. Welcome back to the symposium, sir.
5: So, uh, you. you I just gave you the floor in your absence, and I give you the floor again. Thank you very much.
6: Okay. Well, thank you, thank you all for this invitation to to participate in your in your conference proceedings. Um, I will make a, a broad base. Uh, contribution, I note that your primary interest is in the legal framework and also financial calculations surrounding what reparatory justice models can look like, and that is all fine. And uh, I think this is very important work, indeed. Uh, It's a broad base conversation negotiation as you are aware um, my focus in the last year or two uh, has been in the has been in the diplomacy end of the movement um, uh, seeking to to broaden the participatory engagements of around the world, because we are, in effect, uh, building out a global movement. So I will speak for a short while about that process. And then I will uh, comment on the CARICOM development model, which has at, at its center, the required to adjust process. In CARICOM and the Reparations Commission, we took a decision that the engagement of African governments in uh, the movement joining forces with diaspora governments and uh, NGOs and other organizations will be a game changer in terms of uh, generating global attention. The argument was made that so long as diaspora communities in CARICOM primarily and in the USA, civil society movements, as long as that remains the core of the of the advocacy that it would be no fundamental challenge for those states that committed these crimes against humanity to um, to set aside the representations from the diaspora. In CARICOM, for example, um, letters were written government to government across the European Union to invite them to a summit to discuss this matter. Their position was that um, they acknowledged that the, the Caribbean and the diaspora black community had suffered but they were not prepared to come to a reparations summit that their preference would be to allocate financial resources by way of foreign aid many people of course believe that that was a an embarrassing response so we have we focused in on building a bridge between CARICOM and the African states, and a tremendous amount of effort went into uh, having negotiations with African governments. And we felt that we have made very significant progress because. In August of 2022, a summit was held in Ghana and Accra. And the keynote was presented by the president of Ghana, President Addo, who announced that it is now the policy of the African Union to support the CARICOM diaspora reparations movement, and that going forward, CARICOM and the African Union will be speaking with one voice on the matter of reparations. This was a major breakthrough. The prime minister of Barbados has been in deep advocacy with President Ado and other African leaders. So it is a significant triumph that the African Union is now joining the Caribbean Union to speak as one voice. And in May of this year, there is going to be a major summit uh, in Kenya because the Kenyan government has declared an interest in hosting an African Union meeting on the issue of reparatory justice and there are going to be some other meetings as well around that time in Africa. So this is very significant, especially post-Durban where African governments were not sure about their position. But the significance of this has to do largely with African governments finally lifting themselves from under the propaganda machinery of Western academia. Western academia that built a historiography and a pedagogy upon an argument which was made in the emancipation discourses in the British Parliament and other European parliaments in the early 19th century. The slave traders, when they were told by the abolitionists that their business of slave trading and slavery were crimes, and the movement from slavery as unchristian slavery as a sin to the level that slavery was a crime, and that was the argument which pushed the legislation through the parliament. The slave traders responded by saying, no, well, if it's a crime, it's a global crime because the African governments by and large are our partners And therefore, slavery and slave trading is a partnership between two commercial elites. That, of course, was an absolute dishonest and immoral argument, because on the one hand, they were speaking about the kidnapping. They were speaking about the terrorism that they had unleashed in Africa, the destruction of nations and of communities. The specific targeting of African elites to be destroyed if they stood in the way of slave trading and if they stood in the way of the business, instructions were sent out from the capitals of Europe to destroy governments and, and leaders and monarchies that stood in the way. So it was a focused political act of terror that enabled the slave trade to continue. Um, and then, of course, the 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 exportation of weaponry, so that slave trading and gun trading, as it is today with narcotics and guns, the, uh, the uh, uh, a deeply bonded relationship between narcotics and guns. It was the same in West Africa, with Europeans dumping guns in West Africa. Indeed, guns were the main export to most West African nations in the 18th century. So we finally were able to persuade the African academic community and to some extent the political leaders know that you must not fall victim to this. These Europeans arrived, highly militarized, highly armed, and unleash a reign of terror. That reign of terror enabled the first phase of the trade to take place. The mayhem and the violence unleashed in West Africa by these corporations that were owned by the royal families in large measure, the royal families of Europe, with the full military backing of the, of the state so that phase one, which lasted for over a hundred years until the middle of the 18th century, it was, it was mayhem as, as these corporations extracted Africans for enslavement. Now, phase two, of course, meant that having broken the West African political resolve at the level of the state system, the struggle thereafter took place in communities. So many communities that had lost their, their political leadership resorted to a ground resistance guerrilla warfare against the slave traders. And that this was the period in which that ground war consumed thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives. Militarized gangs marauding through West Africa, avoiding the resistance struggle and kidnapping people. Now, the the African voice is now emerging the African voice is now emerging to speak about what actually happened in West Africa. And many of the royal families that have survived, many of them were driven to exile. Uh, Many of them developed a survivalist approach to the balance of power that has shifted in the favor of slave traders These voices are now beginning to speak up. And we here at the University of the West Indies, we have invited 15 of these most articulate royal members, kings and queens, to come out here to the University of the West Indies. And they will be arriving in about two weeks' time. So we are going to have a symposium here at the University of the West Indies, uh, which would be enabling these kings and queens of West Africa, those who have survived the Holocaust, to speak about their royal families as the leaders of these communities and how they were able to survive the slave trade. So these these monarchs are going to be our guests here. And we are going to be in a position to compare and contrast the royal families of West Africa and their experience of the slave trade and the royal families of Europe, who own the corporations, who use state support to enforce compliance in West Africa, and who were the financial beneficiaries of slave trading because they owned the companies, they owned the stock. So we're going to have a symposium that looks at the royal families of Western Europe and the royal families of West Africa, the divergence of experience, and how the slave trade enriched those European monarchs, but by and large, destroys the capacity of West Africans monarchs to to rule and to administer their nations. All of these developments have been building out a broad base of political support for this movement, but critically bringing African states to the table. Another aspect of this that we have been deepening is to broad base the analysis of slavery and slave trading to include it not only as crime against humanity in in specific relation to enslavement and chattelization, but we have also been building the bridge with genocide as a critical feature of slavery in the Caribbean. Six years ago, I presented a lecture at Harvard Law on slavery as genocide. Um, That lecture is on the YouTube, and many people have been making reference to it. Um, Last week here, again at the university, Professor Orlando Patterson of Harvard also presented a lecture here on slavery as genocide and presented some interesting demographic data to show the genocidal nature and the deliberate genocidal nature of enslavement uh, in the Caribbean uh, by European states and uh, European slave investors. The, The interesting. Conclusion raised by Professor Patterson in the case of Jamaica <clears throat> is that just over a million Africans were brought into Jamaica in chains. At the end of 200 years, emancipation, only 300,000 had survived. And the question was that: How do you reduce? 1.3 million people to 300,000 after 200 years. What Professor Patterson did was to compare the US situation where a much smaller amount of Africans took into the US. As you know, US, I think it was like maybe 10 to 15% of all the Africans brought across the Atlantic went to the US and some 60% came to the
4: Caribbean. But
6: he compared the normal growth rate of the enslaved population in the US, and it grew con- considerably over the slavery period. And then he compared that with the Caribbean. and He said if the Caribbean, or if Jamaica specifically, if the african population had grown at the rate at which it grew in the us that today jamaica would be at the end of slavery jamaica would have 6 million people 6 million africans so basically what he argued is that the number of jews who were massacred by the nazi state that that 6 million figure which is used the Jewish Holocaust, that that was exactly the same figure that should be applied to Jamaica, that normal growth rates, Jamaica would have had at emancipation, 6 million people and not 300,000. That margin he explained in terms of genocide. The data is even more striking for the case of Barbados, where 600,000 600,000 Africans were brought into Barbados. At emancipation, there were only 83,000. This speaking across the Caribbean of less than 20% retention, survival. The population of Barbados today is just under 300,000, just under half the number of Africans who were brought into the island to slavery. The, the genocidal assessment is clear, is crystal clear. In the Caribbean, in terms of legal frameworks, they're speaking not only about commodification, chattelization, they're speaking about chattelization, the denial of human identity, the reduction of people, to property, status, and law. But we're also speaking of genocide, deliberate, systemic genocide, because the, the fundamental economic principle was that it was cheaper to consume the life of an African seven to 10 years of hard, death destruction, life and work It was cheaper and more profitable to consume the lives of these people in seven to 10 years of extreme labor extraction and replace them, buy them, use them up, replace them, go to the auction in the various ports and buy their replacement, That, that cycle of seven to 10 years of extraction and then replacement was more profitable than developing a work regime and a nutrition regime that allowed <coughs> these, popu- these enslaved populations
4: to grow. There was no growth
6: concern, certainly for 80% of the slavery period there was no growth concern. The the discussion around growth only began when slave owners realized that the slave trade was going to be abolished and therefore they needed to find a way to maintain slavery without a slave trade. So the genocide dimension is now also on the agenda for the Reparatory Justice Movement in the Caribbean context.
4: In terms of the calculations,
6: the Caribbean composition is that this region is in desperate need of an economic development program that the systemic decline of Caribbean economies and competitiveness and profitability, the absence of capital in this region to modernize economies, to revitalize economic sectors, traditional sectors, agricultural tourism, and so on, and to have investments in technology and research to create innovation in order to produce new economic sectors, that that capital investments is not available in capital markets. And this region is a need of a development paradigm that invites investment on a win-win basis to promote modernization. And so the conversation is being built around a Marshall style plan that the Caribbean never really had because when these countries fought for their independence, the European governments by and large said, okay, the British government especially, okay, you want independence? Okay, you can have it. Now go. Sign here and go. No development support. No financial compensation. These countries went off into nation building in a horrendous economic situation, massive literacy, urban and rural decline and decay, inadequate infrastructure for school and public health. It was what you call a colonial mess. And these aspiring nation builders were told, "Okay, go and develop. Now, we believe, of course, that given the bad hand that was available to these nation builders, this first generation of, of nation builders, that they did well to convert that colonial mess into viable democratic nations. But all they have been doing was cleaning up the mess that they have inherited hoping to lay the foundation for sustainable development. The British and European governments walked away from their mess, and are of the opinion that they got away scot-free. We have correspondence to show this, and my recent book, How Britain Underdeveloped the Caribbean, is based on the correspondence and the records of the British government saying to the Caribbean, you are on your own, go off, and we owe you nothing. Despite all of the presentations from Caribbean prime ministers in the 50s, in the 60s, the political leaders from the trade union movement calling for an investment in the region to lay the foundation for independence. The British government made it perfectly clear that they owe the Caribbean nothing. They're going to give them minimum. They certainly will not get the development plan or development investments out of Britain and send in these islands off on their merry way. The argument is now that the time has come for this conversation to happen in earnest, because it could not have happened before, because the colonial situation that persisted after independence was very strong. And these Caribbean governments had a great deal to sort out and build in institutions to allow a nation to evolve. But now that process, is relatively secure. This is the time now for that development conversation. And this is where CARICOM is pushing the analysis. There has to be a development plan, a Marshall-style plan for the Caribbean. And this is where the calculations are being made. This is where the calculations are being made for an investment strategy to build out the development infrastructural needs of this region. So the conversation around reparatory justice, around the legal frameworks, and also around uh, financial calculations are taking place with intensity But in respect of the latter, there is a growing
4: agenda to
6: invite the governments and private sectors of Europe to frame an investment strategy for this region that can promote economic development in this region. The conversation
4: is not around
6: creating calculations for individual cash endowments. The conversation in the Caribbean has not really gained traction around that principle. It has gained traction around infrastructure development schools, hospitals, community institutions, uh, reform Investment in agriculture, food security, investment in urban renewal, and education, and so on, building schools and hospitals. That is where the conversation has gone. The investments in the public good as a strategy for reparations. So I will I will leave it there, colleagues, and. Um, and open to any questions that you you might have, thank you
5: thank you, uh, thank you very much um sir Hilary. thank thank you thank you indeed. There is a lot for uh thought in what you said <coughs> I found of particular interest your comment that the African voice is now emerging. There is so much misinformation and just um, sheer ignorance about
4: what happened in Africa that
5: led to our ancestors being transported to the Caribbean and the Americans. And so to have an African voice now
4: involved, I think, is very welcome. So I listened um, last week,
5: followed last week online, the fantastic lecture by H. Orlando Patterson, a Jamaican scholar and intellectual. Um, He was two years ahead of me at the university. So I didn't really get to know um, Orlando, but his work certainly distinguishes him, and I'm very interested in your thesis, as well as his,
4: that by the reduction in the Jamaican slave population from
5: 1.3 million to, I think, 300 about 320,000 at emancipation there was effected a genocide in Jamaica. That, that's a bold statement, but I believe it can be substantiated. Now, H. Orlando, as we called him, I remember, H. Orlando was called, he's a very distinguished sociologist, and he declared that he didn't have a lot of patience with this intent
4: the intent that is required
5: to establish genocide is the most uh, significant element of the Genocide 1948 Convention. Very, very difficult to, to establish it.
4: But the way that you have put forward the
5: case, I think, personally, I would love to be an advocate in a court arguing that, that reduction
4: in the slave population in Jamaica meets the standard, meets the required intent.
5: And that intent is an intent to destroy in whole or in part a group. And as I said, it is notoriously difficult to establish and I can say, um, as you know, I presided over the Milosevic trial. You recall that Mr. Milosevic died some three weeks before. And I can say now for the first time
4: that although he was charged with crimes against humanity, war crimes, and, and um, genocide, I am not at all certain
5: that, on the basis of the evidence that was presented, uh, the court would have been able to find genocide. In the result, um, we didn't have to, because, regrettably, he passed. He passed away. So that 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 is a challenge, and the comparison with the Holocaust is 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 very very apt. But I just want to let you know that I found. Um, all of what you said, um, exceedingly interesting and challenging. And I hope um, others listening
4: would also have found it equally interesting
5: and challenging. Not sure whether you wanted to say anything about the intent and how do you think the intent could be established, in law, intent is usually an inference that is drawn from all the circumstances. It's drawn from facts, and you're allowed to to draw inferences.
6: Well, what I can, where I would begin, would be by establishing that when it became clear in the capitals of Europe and in the Caribbean that the British Parliament was going to end the supply of Africans to the colonies, that in every major colony, Jamaica, Barbados especially, the slave owners went through a reversal in their economic policy. From the the 1780s and 1790s in all of these colonies, the slave owners were getting together to talk reversing their policy. That they will now have to grow a local supply all of them developed incentives now to encourage the enslaved population to breed. They were all given now incentives. There are so many pamphlets written by them on the encouragement of slaves to breed, instructions to managers of plantations, advising them how to turn the history around and get the slaves to reproduce. So there, is a, there was an, an eruption of literature written by slave owners on the eve of the abolition of the slave trade on how to turn around 200 years of decline. And they acknowledged that their practice was genocidal. They acknowledged that their presence. And by genocide, let me define genocide as we historians have tended to do so, if you put a people, a specific group of people in a situation, and you practice economic policies and social policies around that people, and you enforce those policies in a way that that group of people could not possibly increase, but would significantly decrease generation by generation, so that you can see and witness the palpable decline generation by generation over time. But yet you enforce those policies even more aggressively, and the population rapidly collapses in the context of that environment and those policies that is intent that is intent because the slave owners themselves in their various parliaments and elsewhere and their correspondents they made it clear it was cheaper for them to import use up and replace africans than to support them with nutrition support them with domestic infrastructure and to allow them to grow naturally. Now, we have the comparison because in the US, that is what happened. They they gave them a regime of better nutrition. They tried to balance the male-female ratios on the estates. And while they were enslaved, nonetheless, an environment was created with policies Because in the U.S. situation, they wanted the slaves to grow. They were more comfortable growing their slave population than having this annual infusion of Africans. The Caribbean policy rejected the strategy of natural growth. They rejected it they only embrace natural growth as i said when the supply was going to be cut off and then they produce a body of literature to explain why they were doing this so the intent was always there because the intent was associated with an economic policy and a model that it was cheaper and more effective to buy and consume than to support natural growth so I don't believe that the intent argument is foreign to the Caribbean situation. It was deliberate. it was articulated, it was expressed, they knew it. they practice it. And we also know when they when try to reverse it. And when you read letters, one of the great pieces of material published was uh, a small book published in 1786 on the eve of the slave trade abolitionist discourses. And this book was written by the six largest, some of the six of the largest slave owners in Barbados. And the book is entitled, it's a little book, you know, 15 pages. Instructions to managers, instruction to managers of estates on the growing of the slave population. And it sets out all of the incentives that should be given to slaves, especially to women. You give them some cash for the second and third child. You increase their nutrition. You give them milk, a pint of milk every morning. You give them more meat. When the woman became pregnant, as soon as the pregnancy is declared and is evident, you pull them out of the cane fields and give them lighter domestic work. Then you give them more financial incentives. And if they're able to give you six or seven babies that are healthy, you can give them freedom for that. You can free the woman for that. An important thing when the relationship was established between the male and the female, you would allow them to live in the same house. So you could put together a nuclear family in the, slave, in the slave cabin. The man and the woman can now live together as husband and wife with their babies. And as an incentive to that little household, you will not sell their children. They will not sell their babies off the plantation. They will stay on the plantation with their mothers and fathers. All of these prenatal and postnatal strategies were highly sophisticated and were designed to produce growth, and they did produce growth. But for 200 years, the management strategy and the policies produced genocide. So establishing intent, in the case of Jamaica, Barbados, I think it is very, very clear. The evidentiary basis of genocide, and if you want to use intent as a criterion, well, I think that is perfectly clear as well, what the intent was. And driven by profitability on both sides of the equation. But as as I
5: said before, I'm willing to um, to change my heart and to take on the case of an advocate. I did work in the Attorney General the Department and I was an advocate um, in, in many, many cases and I enjoyed the role immensely, immensely. And of course, uh, talking about the Jamaican genocide, um, it's ironical that the Jamaican slave owners, who were 35 times more wealthy than their American counterparts, did not um, see fit to treat their enslaved um, better because they were in
7: they were financially more um,
5: more capable of, of of doing that, and I think all of that um, I think is would be part of the evidence that would be relevant to the to the establishment of intent. So I think the, 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 the sociological truth, the historical truth that Orlando Patterson and yourself have shown in relation to Jamaica is, for me, it is also a legal truth. It's a legal truth. And I think the case, uh, case could be made. So for my own part, I want to thank you. Uh, very, very much for the presentation. Thank you. I'm not sure whether there are um, other questions to be asked. I didn't intend to take up all the time.
6: Well, I thank you for this invitation, and I wish the conference all the very best. Thank you, Judge. I appreciate it. Thank you.
5: Thank you very much, um, Professor. And we, of course, um, as usual, profited tremendously from your presentation.
1: Thank you. I think next
5: on, sorry, next on the, um, the program is a presentation um, that I will make on some legal issues that are relevant to the quantification of reparations. And the first one that I'd like to deal with is <coughs> the legal basis for reparations. What is the legal basis for reparations? The legal basis is the obligation imposed on the wrongdoing responsible state to restore the injured party to the situation that would have existed if the unlawful act had not taken place. And we find that principle reflected in Article 31 of the International Law Commission's articles on state responsibility. And it says that the responsible state is under an obligation to make full reparation for the damage caused by the internationally wrongful conduct. Now, the first form of reparations is restitution. But since it is not possible to restore the descendants of enslaved Africans to the situation that would have existed if TCS had not taken place international law then requires that compensation be paid but compensation alone cannot make good the damage caused by TCS and in that case the law requires that satisfaction be given And as I said, that may take the form of an expression of regret, a formal apology, or any other appropriate modality. In my view, satisfaction will form an important component of reparations for TCS because monetary compensation will never be sufficient. There will be a need to ensure that programs are implemented to educate the descendants of the slave owners about the ills of TCS. Not long ago, a committee established by a government of the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom suggested that black Britons benefited from TCS and that there should be a focus on what it called the positive aspects of that practice. This kind of revisionist approach has to be countered by specific policies. And there will be also a need for programs designed to reverse injuries resulting from TCS.
8: And reparation should also include programs
5: that memorialize the struggle of the
8: enslavement of freedom.
4: The now, since reparations are a
5: legal response to wrongful conduct, um, it is uh, appropriate to provide a few examples of conduct. In the first symposium, we concluded that chattelization, which was characterized by the discriminatory treatment of Africans, was the essence of TCS. And it had seven phases, capture and sale of Africans in Africa, the trek to the dungeons on the coast or to ships, internment in those dungeons or ships, the middle passage or the passage from Africa to Brazil, sale on the auction block in the Americas and the Caribbean, work on the plantations or elsewhere, and the concomitant trade in a statement. Every single phase was. On conduct. And the first example of wrongful conduct I wanted to present to you has just been presented by Professor Beckles, and that is the genocide effected by DCS on the enslaved population in Jamaica. In sum, PCS was little more than a machinery that created killing fields which regrettably remain in modern-day Jamaica. And this is an example of the wrongful conduct that must be addressed by reparations. Another example is the well-known case of Thomas Disselaer. If you recall, his favorite punishment for a runaway from his plantation in Jamaica, was to coerce another enslaved, to defecate in the runaway's mouth, which was then gagged for about three hours. So we go down, two examples, and of course there are hundreds more, but that was the work of the first symposium, not this kind. But with those examples, I want to turn now to reparations for the consequences of CCS in the period when it was carried out, and to highlight some of the legal issues that are raised. And the first one is causation.
2: In order for reparations
5: to be paid, it must be established that the alleged injury or harm is the consequence of the wrongful conduct of those states that carried out PCS.
7: That is, in the language
5: of the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, whether there was a sufficient direct and certain causal nexus between particular acts carried out in the practices of transatlantic chapter of slavery and the injury suffered. That's causation. What about the standard of proof or the degree of proof that is required to examine the causal nexus between the wrongful conduct of TCS and a particular injury or harm suffered, for example, loss of life? Ladies and gentlemen, TCS should be seen as a mass atrocity, as millions of Africans were subjected to this wrongful conduct. But there is no need to establish that a particular injury suffered by an enslaved person was caused by a particular act at a particular time and at a particular place. That requirement doesn't exist for mass casualties. In relation to such details, In the Democratic Republic of Congo versus Uganda, Uganda, a war between the two states, the ICJ held, and I quote, in cases of mass injuries like the present one, the court may form an appreciation of the extent of damage on which compensation should be based.
7: Now, the particular
5: standard of proof is fact-dependent and consequently a flexible approach is required. In light of the particular circumstances in which a claim for reparations for TCS arises, I would submit that proof on the balance of probabilities is the most appropriate standard. That is, It must be established that it is more probable than not that the required causal nexus exists. I turn next to valuation. It is certain that in cases where it is certain that injury or harm resulted from a wrongful act, but there is uncertainty as to the extent of that injury or harm. The, there is a principle called the principle of equitable consideration, which may be used to determine the extent of the harm or injury on the basis of a reasonable estimation. You will hear from the biographic group. They do not make any explicit reference to this principle of equitable consideration. What you will hear then speak of assumptions. When hard evidence is not available, they work on the basis of assumptions, which are a kind of estimation. Now, what are the heads of damages, in respect of which reparations will be due? Who do we have here? I them, They would include the following: loss of life, loss of income or earnings, personal injuries, non-material damage, a total disregard for the humanity and dignity of Africans, trampling over their identity, destruction of their culture, language, religion, and families, loss of personal autonomy and self-hatred. Psychological damage may be presumed from the nature of the violations inflicted on the enslaved. Notwithstanding this presumption, the symposium has found it very, very difficult to place a value on psychological damage both in respect of the enslaved as well as their descendants. And I'd like to take this opportunity as I know we are streaming far and wide to invite anyone listening to assist the symposium by providing a basis for placing a value on the psychological harm caused by transatlantic slavery. Danny. And I do hope someone will
7: Somebody,
5: take up the that people
7: be up with the food. I mean, with the
5: there normal. is also deprivation of liberty huh? and deprivation see, of anybody, the the
0: but of course um, deprivation wow. of liberty the is light on, it's the, the, the
5: of chastenedization and the loss of their freedom. Yeah. And deprivation of access to a number of services, including those relating to health, housing, and education, sexual exploitation, other, and trading in and slavery. Now, the Brattle Group, you will see, they have their heads of damages. They do not employ, at times, the same. Nomenclatures that I have used, but I am entirely satisfied that they correspond substantially with those that I have set, set out. So in light of the foregoing, it would be reasonable to conclude that on the basis of proof on a balance of probability, there is a sufficiently direct and certain causal nexus between each head of damage and the wrongful conduct as described above. That is, it is more probable probable than not that the required nexus exists. Consequently, reparations are required under international law. I now turn to reparations for the consequences of TCS in the period following its formal termination. Why do I call it formal termination? Because as you will see, although there are acts of the legislature in many countries abolishing chattel slavery, it continues. The essence of chattel slavery continues. Now let us look at causation. The principal concern in this path is to establish there is a sufficiently direct and certain causal nexus between the wrongful conduct of TCS and the injury or harm suffered after its formal termination. The discriminatory treatment suffered by the enslaved did not stop after
4: the formal termination of the
5: And it is for this reason that there is a direct relationship between the original act of enslavement and the discriminatory treatment of the former enslaved and their descendants in, for example, the Jim Crow period of 100 years after 1865 in the United States of America, and also the 1921 Tulsa Massacre in the same country. In other words, just as discrimination through catalyzation was at the root of the evil treatment of the enslaved in the USA, discrimination through catalyzation is also at the root of the treatment of the former enslaved and their descendants after the formal termination of transatlantic church slavery. So let me turn next now to the question of a continuing breach.
4: This concept addresses the extension in time of the breach of an international
5: obligation. And Article 142 of the International Law Commission's articles on state responsibility provides that the breach of an international obligation by an act of a state of a continuing character extends over the entire period
2: during which the act continues
5: and remains not in conformity with the international obligations. In our context, there is a continuing breach because the discriminatory practices that characterize chattelization continued after the formal termination of TCS. And in a context where the obligation under international law not to carry out such practices, remained. Professor Tendai ash a former UN Special Rapporteur on Racism, cited this article in her report to the United Nations to show that discriminatory post-emancipation treatment as black persons constitutes wrongful conduct for which reparations are required. Professor Ash report is notable for the stress that it places on structural and systemic racism after the formal termination of transatlantic chattel slavery. That is the continuing breach. Now we cannot overlook an important qualification that is in paragraph 6 of the International Law Commission's draft address, on state responsibility. The commentary on Article 14.2 cautions that, and here I quote, an act does not have a continuing character merely because its effects or consequences continue in time it must be the wrongful act as such, which continues, end of quotation. But in relation to TCS, the symposium's position is that what has continued is the wrongful act of discriminatory treatment against Black people and not merely the effects or consequences of such an act. The discriminatory treatment of black people post-emancipation is not the effect or consequence of TCS. Rather, it is the continuation of the act itself because discrimination is at the root of TCS. The head of damages would look something like this. Loss of human lives, for example, the killing and lynching, of black people in the Jim Crow period in the United States, personal injuries, non-material injury, such as I have set out in the first part. Discrimination in the justice system, deprivation of the right to vote, and deprivation of access to a number of social services, including employment, health, housing, and education. Again, again, the breakfast groups' heads of damages are not exactly the same as those that I have set up, but they are substantially the same. In particular, wealth disparity is an appropriate tool to assess the deprivation of access suffered by black persons after the formal termination of DCS, to a variety of services, including health, housing, and education. Conclusion. In light of the foregoing, it may be concluded that on the basis of proof on a balance of probabilities, there is a sufficiently direct and certain causal nexus between the wrongful conduct of TCS on the one hand, and the injury or harm identified in each head of damage suffered by the former enslaved and their descendants after the former termination of TCS on the other. Therefore, it is more probable than not that the required causal nexus exists. And therefore, reparations are required under international law. Those are the matters I wanted to address um, in identifying some of the legal issues that are relevant to the quantification of reparations by the experts. The next item in the program is what we are here to hear. It is the Brattle Report. Ladies and gentlemen, the Brattle Group is one of the world's leading economic consulting firms. We have with us today two leaders of the team, Dr. Alberto Vargas and Dr. Coleman Basilon. So I apologize if I have mispronounced it. And they will present a summary of their work. Dr. Vargas is a principal at the Brattle Group, where he leads the broker, dealers, and financial services practice. He was born in Mexico City where he received a B.S. in applied mathematics from ITAM and where he lectured at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. He holds a Ph.D. in economics from MIT and has over 10 years' experience in economic consulting. As a consultant, he has led teams quantifying damages in forums, including civil courts and international arbitrations in Europe, the Americas, and Oceania. Most recently, he testified in front of a Royal Commission of Inquiry in Papua New Guinea on the overcharging by an international bank on debt issuance's by that country's government. Dr. Coleman Archelon is a principal at the Brackley Group. Outside of his leadership in Brackley's telecommunications, intellectual property, and sports practices, he has a long involvement in pro bono economic analysis. For more than a decade, he has served as the economist for the master rights petitioners who advocate low cost phone calls with the incarcerated in U.S. jails and prisons. He has also served as an expert witness for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund in their litigation against the state of Texas's voter ID requirements. Dr. Bassman also serves on the Maryland and National Boards of the American Civil, Civil Liberties Union. Ladies and gentlemen, may I ask the two gentlemen to take the first. Gentlemen,
8: you have the floor. Thank you very much. Um, we have uh, some slides we're going to use. And uh, as we get them up, I will introduce ourselves. Um, so we are presenting uh, on a paper we have written that it'll be available through the conference website on the quantification of reparations for transatlantic chattel slavery. Um, the, as noted, the Bravo Group is an economic consulting firm. Uh, our, uh, our day job is quantification of damages uh, in litigations and arbitrations, and I believe we were asked to do this in, because of that expertise, not because of our uh, knowledge of the, of the topic.
2: Um,
8: I'm just waiting for Alberta to share the slides. There we go. So on the, if we go down to the authors page, I just want to briefly acknowledge that although Alberto and I are um, presenting today, uh, that this uh, research was done by, uh, collaboratively with many people at Brattle. Um, there was dozens and dozens of folks who were uh, contributed to this. The collaborators listed are folks who all uh gave more than a day of effort. Uh but I especially want to acknowledge Mary and Rohan who are uh, uh really the backbone of the work and put in hundreds and hundreds of hours each uh making sure that this uh this work was done. Um I also want to acknowledge uh want to thank uh um, Judge Robinson uh for the invitation uh to uh present this we are really thankful quite grateful for the opportunity Um, In developing our analysis, uh, uh, we rested heavily on on feedback and comments from, in addition to Judge Robinson, uh, Professor Shepard, and Natalie Reed. and uh, also we wanted to specifically acknowledge um, Samantha Campbell and Michael Hilton for their help in helping us navigate through the extensive research and data that's out there in compiling that um, and making it useful for our our analysis. Um, the assignment we were given uh, was to follow up on the uh, the first symposium that established a cause for uh, for harm, um, and in this second uh, symposium,
7: Judge um, uh, Robinson asked us to um, estimate the quantum. Um,
8: Alberto, could you advance the slide?
7: Um, in, in
8: doing this we looked to guidance from uh, a number of sources, including um, the framework provided by uh, Judge Robinson for reparations. Uh, with, uh, the work of uh, Professor Beckles and Professor Shepherd was incredibly uh, important uh, foundation. And uh, we also drew on broader academic literature um, on various harms as well as uh, reparations. We were asked to estimate, uh, and I think this is the first time uh, to estimate the harms uh, for all of transatlantic chattel slavery. We were asked to identify those harms by country, uh, both uh, the harm country in the Americas and the Caribbean, but also the enslaved income uh, countries. But uh, as noted earlier, and just to be uh, clear about it, we were not asked to uh, apportion um, the reparations beyond the country level to individuals either downstream or upstream of, 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 of those. Um, so reparations, uh, as noted, is really about the the project of repair, and it encompasses much more than just monetary uh, harm or compensation. but that, that's the portion of, um, of, the, of the project that we've been asked to focus on. So I uh, wanted to be clear that we are just looking at the compensation aspect of this. And as a reality check, also wanted to um, just acknowledge that even with the limited scope of the economic harm, the, the assignment of um, estimating the complete amount of quantum um, is really uh, a quite challenging. And, uh, and we have not we have not completed that as uh, Professor Robinson noted a minute ago. there are certain uh, heads of damages, especially related to psychological damage set that, um, that we don't provide estimates for um, and we'll lead to further work and do uh, do appreciate the ideas that will come in on, on how to attra- uh, attract those uh, estimate those. Um, but what we have done is taken some of the, uh, larger buckets of harm and estimated uh, damages for them, uh, but they're not complete. Um, wanted to just put our work in a little context. There are others who have uh, provided estimates of reparations. Um, they, they, uh, they are broadly consistent with the work we've done, but somewhat different in scope, uh, uh, of the numbers. So for example, in the Empire Pays Back, the there is an estimate provided, um, of $4 dollars uh, in unpaid wages. Um, that focuses on British colonies, uh, whereas our, uh, analysis, um, is across all of the Americas and Caribbean. Um, that analysis is, uh, is broadly consistent with the work we're doing in that it's based on about a, a million dollars per, uh, enslaved person as a level of damages for unpaid wages. Our estimates are a little bit higher than that. Oh, sorry, pounds per unpaid
7: um,
4: wages.
8: Our estimates are a little bit higher than that, but in the same, in the same area, but just applied to a much larger face. Uh, we do not, on the other hand, uh, include an estimate directly of just enrichment, although aspects of that do, uh, do feed into some
0: of our analysis.
8: Um, and many others have been provided. The uh, For example, the more recent Darity and Mullin analysis of reparations is focused on, again, just on the United States. It's based on a wealth disparity measure. That is one component of what we provide. Our numbers are a little different than theirs, but, but very close to it. Uh, but our estimate um, is more uh, comprehensive in that, again, it
4: goes well in the United States.
8: Um, and then finally, I'd like to uh, just give a brief overview of the, uh, the presentation, the approach that we're going to provide. Um, first we divide our analysis into two large uh, buckets of analysis or periods. Um, we estimate the harms during the period of enslavement and then separately uh, post-enslavement. It, within each of these areas, again, I want to uh, re-emphasize that there are some things we measure and there are some things we were unable to measure. And we try to be clear about, about that. And for anybody who is, uh, spends any time with this topic will realize that when we're talking about harms that span centuries and um, and, and uh, have to be accounted for over hundreds of years, uh, the use of the interest rate is just a fundamental key uh, part of this analysis.
1: And so I wanted to
8: be very upfront about that. An interest rate, which is used to translate a value for one period of time to another, has three components to it. It's accounting for three different things. Uh, One is the purchasing power of money so that you're able to uh, purchase the same set of goods with the the amount of dollars. That's the inflation component. And over these long time periods, um, we use about a a 1.5% estimation for inflation. The second component of an interest rate has to do with the time value of money or or just simply how much I have to pay you for a delay in receiving um, a payment, Um, and that's the real interest rate. Uh, That, we estimate, or we use a 1% real interest rate over these long time periods. Um, It's worth noting what's a conservative number, and there's a much longer discussion about this in the paper, Uh, but together... Those equal about a two and a half percent uh, interest rate, which we use. Um, we also don't make any adjustment for the riskiness of the investment, default uh, risk, under but the assumption that,
2: that uh, the countries that
8: uh, that owe the money today are, are uh, able to pay it. That would be a, that would be another another area of risk, and we do provide some sensitivities for these. Um, if we don't clarify things, somebody paper analysis. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Alberto uh, to start us off on the period of enslavement and, and I'll pick back up later in the uh, presentation. Thank you. Thank you.
9: Thank you very much, Paulman and uh, thank you, Judge Robinson, for, for the invitation. And I, I must echo the thanks to everyone who uh, <clears throat> helped us either by providing comments or helping us with the data uh, availability for, for this particular project. So
7: we will begin by discussing
9: the calculation of damages during the period of enslavement, and as Coleman already uh, <clears throat> noted, we will divide these into two broad, ca- two broad categories: the cag- categories where we can provide an actual estimate of the quantum of damage, and others. Uh, uh, then the second category are Heads of damages where we are unable to provide uh, an estimate. For the categories where we are able to provide the estimate, uh, you will note uh, that, that the order in which we present them may be somewhat counterintuitive. The more intuitive approach would be to begin with loss of liberty which is uh, the origin of all the rest of the damages. However, the way in which we will present them is uh, what uh, what we've been referring to as a building blocks approach. Um, paid wages and loss of life will uh, provide a, a very concrete me- uh, methodo- methodology that allows us to anchor the values of the rest of the damages. Therefore, we discuss first loss of life and unpaid wages. We will treat them as a single head, uh, as a single combined head of damages, and then we will anchor the value of the rest of of the heads of damages to that combined uh, loss of life and unpaid wages head. That does not mean that we do not recognize the importance of other damages that happened during the period of enslavement. Everything from psychological mistreatment, family separation, political disenfranchisement, and social isolation, and I am sure we are missing uh, many, many more from this list, where part of the uh, horrible damages and, and harms that were experienced by the enslaved. We want to recognize that we are aware of them, We also want to recognize that the tools that we have at hand at this moment do not allow us to calculate damages associated with these types of damages. So with that, let us set the stage for the calculations that we will uh, be presenting. Much of this data, uh, or or at least part of it, is probably well known to a good portion of the audience uh, uh, present here today. We begin by looking at the number of embarked, uh, enslaved people that uh, left Africa and sometimes European shores, but mostly Africa headed to the Americas and the Caribbean. As we know, not all of those uh, survived the, uh, the middle passage. So we disentangle those who were actually disembarked. That were roughly 8 million people, and those that died in the Middle Passage, roughly 1.2 million people. Here, it it is important to note that we will be calculating damages associated for both, and I will go into further detail on how we do not make uh, an important methodological distinction between those who uh, actually disembarked and those who died in the middle passage for the purpose of calculating the damages in in regards to those born into slavery here I might uh, I must make uh, an important caveat in that there is a big estimation component to this number whereas for the embarked, and the disembarked, we actually have access to the records of of the people who who were enslaved and uh, transported. We do not have sufficiently rich data to affirm that we have a precise number for those born into slavery. For the case of the United States, we do have uh, records that allow us to present the uh, roughly seven million number that we see for the United States as uh, data-based. For the rest of the countries, we adopt uh, a methodology that was uh, that was first presented in the uh, in the documentary that Coleman already made reference to, "The Empire Pays Back," where they assume one birth into slavery for every three. Uh, every three enslaved person that was transported to the Americas. Adding all of these numbers together gives us the staggering amount of almost 20 million people who were enslaved and on whom we will be calculating damages. Now, the the table, as we presented in this slide, is a little bit uh, overwhelming. There's far too much to take in. Perhaps an easier way to see who were the, uh, the nations involved in, uh, in enslaving these 19 million people, we can see this graphical representation. Portugal and uh, the United Kingdom or its predecessor states share the greatest portion of, uh, uh, of the number of enslaved people. Between the two of them, they are roughly half of the 20 million uh, that we, that we saw in the previous, in the previous page. Note that this, uh, this chart talks only about the embarkments, so that is why it won't add up to the 20 million that we, that we saw. If we are not taking into account the, those born in slavery. Behind Portugal and Britain, Spain and France follow, uh, closely, and Brazil shows up as it continued with, uh, the it continued having uh, enslaved people even after independence. Now that we have a sense of the number of people on whom we will be measuring the damages, let us go into the actual methodology. As I mentioned earlier, we will be combining uncompensated labor and loss of life into an estimate that we refer to as forgone earnings. Let me unpack that a little bit. Loss of life is uh, ahead of uh, ahead of damages that has been measured in many ways in the economic and the actuarial literature. One of the most uh, frequent ways in which this has been measured in uh, in recent years is the loss of productive life approach. The idea behind the loss of productive life approach is that the harm, or at least the economic harm, experienced. To untimely death, is equivalent to the foregone earnings that that person uh, it has uh, foregone because of their prem- premature death. Now, this is a, this translates into a simple calculation of what would have been a person's expected uh, life expectancy at the time of death were it not because of the harm, or because of the accident or uh, the yeah. measures the damages. Meanwhile, uncompensated labor is simply the number of years that the enslaved worked and was not paid for. So in both situations, we have that a number of years is multiplied by the wage that should have been paid to that person. If we add up the number of years in those situations, we have, first of all, for uncompensated labor, that the number of years is the number of years that the enslaved person actually worked. For loss of life, it's the number of years, the number of additional years that the enslaved person would have lived had they not been enslaved. If we add up those two numbers together, It is actually the life expectancy at the age that the person was enslaved for a free person. So it is the amount of time that in our base example, say at age 20, a non-enslaved person would have been expected to live. And then we multiply that number of years times the wage that a free person would have lived. Again, All this is is presenting a number that is what would have been this person's lifetime earnings were it not because of their enslavement. They would have lived or they would have been expected to live as much as a free person and they would have been expected to earn per year or per hour uh, the amount that a free person would have been expected to earn. This
7: okay.
9: simplifies our calculation to multiplying two numbers, the life expectancy of a free person times the wage times every single one of the 19 or 20 million people that we are looking for. Now, here, uh, we, uh, because of time limitations, I cannot go into all the assumptions that we that we had to uh, that we had to use in calculating this but I will mention a few since they are important and we will talk about how important those assumptions are or are not to the final number later in the presentation. The richer data that we found available for life expectancy going back the centuries that we care about was for the United States, and the same for the wage of a free person. So what we do, and I will discuss this in a little bit uh, more detail in, in a second, is take the case of the United States as a base case. So we have data from the Massachusetts Bureau of Statistics that allows us to have wage data from a single place, from single geography, ranging from the 1700s to the 1800s. We anchor our, our calculations to this uh, to this wage level, and we also anchor our life expectancy to the life expectancy in the United States or the relevant periods. Other assumptions that we make are that the enslaved were captured at an age of 20. So whenever we calculate the damages associated with uh, someone who was captured into slavery, we take their life expectancy at 20. Again, that would be the life expectancy of a non-enslaved person at 20. For those born into slavery, uh, we follow uh, academic literature uh, that conducted similar calculations, and we assume that slave work began at the age of five for those born into slavery. So what is the the end result of this? By applying this methodology to all of the countries in the Caribbean and the Americas, we end up coming up with a calculation of 54 trillion dollars in total in um, in reparations for loss of life and loss of wages. So this is. Uh, even though Coleman uh, presented some of the results from prior literature, this is the first time we are presenting a calculation of our own. And I I recognize that these are staggeringly large numbers. At the end of our presentation, we will aim to put these staggeringly large numbers into context. So uh, I, I think that All of us have a very strong gut reaction whenever we see a number that begins with trillions uh, instead of uh, millions or even billions that we are used to seeing. Uh, One thing I would would highlight about this is that the damages are split almost evenly across three geographies, three broad regions, the Caribbean, South America, and the United States, with Central America and other territories having much, much smaller, um, much smaller damages. Another point that uh, Coleman highlighted at the beginning of his presentation was the importance of the interest rate. So, what we what we want to highlight at this point is the importance of two of the assumptions that we are making. As I said, a lot of our analysis is anchored on data available for the United States, so we want to show two things in this uh, with this chart. One, the huge importance of the interest rate when conducting these, these calculations, and second, the relative importance of other assumptions. If we go across the columns, what we show in each of the different columns is what happens if our assumption that wages were the same everywhere in the Americas as they were in the U.S.? What happens if that assumption is not accurate? And we we uh, we look at a pretty broad set of assumptions ranging for what if we assume that everywhere else wages were 75%. what they were in the United States? Or in the other extreme, what if they were actually 125%? And here it's important to note uh, that either of those assumptions could be a reasonable outcome. Most of the the work that was performed by the enslaved happened in pre-industrial societies. So the Wage disparity between the United States and other territories was not necessarily in one direction or the other, as it was likely driven by what economists refer to as the marginal productivity of labor. That is, given the characteristics of say the land or other geographic characteristics of uh, the place where the enslaved worked, an enslaved person could actually be much more productive in places where, uh, the land, uh, allows to produce very valuable crops. So the key observation of do, uh, that, uh, that comes out from doing this sensitivity analysis is that there is certainly, uh, variation when we, when we move this, uh, this particular assumption. But that variation is relatively or absolutely uh, small once we see what the possible variation is when we move the interest rate. So each row in this table represents the values for uh, under different interest rate assumptions. The very first row assumes that no interest rate is paid. So if we assume that... Uh, Interest should not be paid for these reparations, which we would uh, never take as a reasonable assumption, we would end up with 190 billion dollars in reparations. that is, the middle number in the first row. If we assume that only one percent uh, interest should be paid, that number becomes 1.5 trillion dollars. So by going from 0% to 1%, we've almost multiplied 10 times the magnitude of the reparations. As Coleman mentioned at the beginning, our base estimate is based on a 2.5% interest, uh, which is roughly inflation plus 1% uh, real interest. That yields a $54 trillion estimate in our base scenario. If we reduced this interest rate by 0.2%, it, we lose almost a third of the value of the calculation. If we reduce it by 0.4%, so we make it 2.1%, we are losing almost half of the calculation. So it, it is... it is. Um, it is a point that I, I think we cannot stress enough, the, the importance of the interest rate and how all of these interest rates that we are showing, even the 5%, which produces uh, numbers that are so staggeringly high that uh, are, we, we wouldn't even know how to put them in proportion within the magnitude of the world's economy. Yet 5%, is an interest rate that has been observed over the past uh, 500 years, and a case could be made that some investments have reasonably grown without great uh, risk at those levels. So we will come back to the, inter- to the discussion of, uh, of interest rates once we've investigated the rest of the heads of damages. This is the first introduction that we make to them. Then we go to the second uh, or third uh, head of damage, uh, Loss of Liberty. Here, our analysis is based on the academic li- literature on manumission. So the academic literature has looked at, um, uh, has uh, we found some uh, empirical work where through the analysis of manumissions, the authors managed to separate the value of the labor as understood by the slave owners and the value at which the manumissions actually occurred, they conclude that there is a rough 20% discrepancy between the two. The interpretation is that that 20% is the actual value of giving uh, the freedom to be enslaved, the value at, at which the enslaved uh, values the freedom beyond the economic um, benefit that he or she will receive from being paid by its labor. So the calculations that we do to come for a, a quantification of law, damages associated with loss of liberty is apply that 20% to our foregone earnings calculation and we arrived at a base value of uh, 10.9 uh, almost 11 trillion dollars to check how reasonable this approach to calculating loss of liberty was we looked at two other approaches the first one was looking at uh, in the case of the United States what uh, what is the compensation for false imprisonment paid across multiple states? We end up seeing uh, that a reasonable calculation of, of the average is roughly $38,000 uh, uh, per, per person. And then we multiply that times the number of enslaved life years. And here we come across another staggering number that we have to keep in mind when we, uh, when we consider the total numbers that we present for reparations. 801 million life years of enslavement. This is, uh, th- th- this is a, 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 at least to me an even more staggering number than thinking of uh, 20 million enslaved people. 801 million years of enslaved life is an overwhelming number for me. But we must go back to the calculations. Uh, by doing this approach, we arrived at an estimate of $30.1 trillion in loss of liberty. The third approach that we looked at was Calculate the compensation that was paid in the United States to those interred in um, to the Japanese and Japanese Americans that were in, interred during um, during Second World War. This gives us a smaller number of 10.7 trillion dollars when we apportion it to what it would have, what the equivalent would have been for the inflate. So, this gives us two, uh, two additional measures, one with a larger, one with a smaller final outcome than, a, than our base calculation, which gives us comfort in that our base calculation is of the right order of magnitude. The next set of damage that, uh, that we look at is personal injury. Personal injury will also be anchored on our foregone earnings uh, <clears throat> calculation, in particular, in, uh, as it refers to loss of life. Here, we we have the benefits of, uh, of a very detailed methodology presented by the 9-11 Compensation Fund, where the fund compensated simultaneously for loss of life and for uh, personal injury and the uh, we take a relatively simplistic approach where we find the ratio of the average award for personal injury to the average award for loss of life and find that the that on average personal injury was compensated by an amount of of the average loss of life compensation. We apply that same ratio, and we assume that everyone who was enslaved suffered personal injury, an assumption that I hope will not be controversial. And this leads us to a calculation of $6 trillion in damages for personal injury. Now for the next head of damages, I will hand over the presentation to Coleman once more, and he will talk about the fourth head of damages that we can calculate, which is compensation for gender-based violence.
8: Thank you, Alberto. So uh, picking up on this last, um, last area that we estimate uh, harm during the period of enslavement, is for gender-based violence. As noted earlier, this is rape, forced pregnancy, and and other uh, types of sexual abuse. Here we are trying to estimate um, compensation um, for this harm that is above and beyond compensation that's already been paid. So we, we conceptually at least, uh, this is not about um, the loss of liberty, uh, forced confinement, loss of wages, Um, It is is intended more to focus on the psychological harm um, uh, from this this head of damage. Um, The first uh, assumption we make is, although we uh, recognize that there was gender-based violence and sexual um, assaults against men and children, uh, we're going to focus on what we understand to be the majority of the harm, which was against uh, enslaved women, and the first step is to estimate the number of uh, enslaved women, and looking at research um, both on um, the, during the period of transport and uh, and subsequently, um, we come up with an estimate that about 35% of uh, of all enslaved people who came to the U.S. plus came to the Americas plus uh, were born here um, were were women. And that um, other research has shown that uh, more than half, about 58% of uh, adult women um, who were enslaved uh, experienced sexual assault. So combining those two numbers of the amount of uh, women and the uh, the adult women, um, the the share of them that uh, this research suggests uh, suffered this harm, that gives us the the number of individuals um, and the number of years of their lives that that uh, we want to use in our estimation. Um, here we turn toward. Uh, uh, if you can go back just a sec, uh, uh, here we turn toward um, uh, judicial, other judicial uh, determinations of harm for our the amount of, that we are going to apply uh, here, and we look across a broad variety. They're largely uh, applicable, but not exactly. Um, the same as what we're trying to estimate. And there's also a, an issue, a, a methodological issue about these these uh, amounts of compensation are for distinct periods of time, uh, whereas we are trying to estimate um, uh, lifetime levels of harm. So we take as a base, uh, uh, using our judgment as a base from these uh, judicial um, uh, determinations, an average of about $50,000 uh, U.S. per year uh, of, of adult harm um, for this, for this, and that together uh, then ends up um, with an estimation of harm, which on the next page uh, brings these all together. And um, uh, when you multiply them out for both folks that were uh, came to America and the, the Americas and uh, and we're born here, we end up with an almost $7 trillion estimate of harm, uh, this last head of damages. So now taking these, uh, it's really five heads of damages, recognizing the foregone earnings uh, encompasses two distinct uh, um, things, the lost wages plus the loss of life. If we add them all up, um, the wrongful conduct during the period of enslavement is approaching 80 trillion dollars, almost, uh, almost $79 trillion. Um, we're now going to turn toward the period of uh, post-enslavement, and then all of this will be put in, these staggering numbers will be put in context um, uh, uh, soon. Oh, I, I think it's worth noting we've also uh, unpacked these by uh, this estimate by the uh, enslaving countries and the harmed regions. Um, we have the details by country the full matrix, and we'll present that for the total um, set of harms uh, of both periods at the end of the presentation. So, moving to the period of uh, uh, post-enslavement, the first thing we want to recognize is that there are many continuing harms uh, that that happen after emancipation. Averda, we can go to the next slide. Uh, We we use as our summary measure, as I think others, have, others uh, who have done research in this area have done, is a summary measure for the harm from this period of wealth disparities um, between uh, – well, I'll get into the details of how we calculate it in a second. Um, we, we're also going to provide uh, a recognition that there are – beyond what's captured by the wealth disparities, there's many other continuing harm, um, and we are going to uh, give a give some indication of those, uh, but again, it's really important for us to acknowledge that we are not capturing the full scope of harms uh, from, from this measure or this analysis. So the wealth disparity, which is at the heart of what we're um, estimating here, uh, uh, is intended to capture the har- the economic harm um, post the period of enslavement. Um, in essence, what it's trying to get at is that if uh, if after uh, after a person is freed from slavery, if their ability to get a job, uh, the type of job that they get, the amount they're paid um, for the job is all diminished because of their status, they'll earn less income than they would have. at the continuing legacy um, of slavery. And that, that, la- that lower income is gonna have two effects um, on them. One is, their consumption, the, the, the quality of their life, what they're able to consume, the utility they get, uh, uh, will be lower during their lifetime, but it will also mean that they will have less wealth to lead to the next generation. And when that generation then uh, sets out and experiences those same harms, they start, uh, at a disadvantage because they have less wealth. And this, uh, this, uh, process accumulates over time, um, and, uh, and ends up with our measure of the wealth disparity uh, experienced today. Um, we, we estimate this in sort of two buckets. Uh, for the United States, we're able to look at uh, the difference between white and black uh, people in the US um, and the wealth, the average wealth held uh, there. And our estimate of disparity is the difference in value, and the difference in these uh, average amounts of wealth, Times the number of Black people in the U.S. In essence, the amount of money that would eliminate the wealth gap um, within the United States. For the rest of the Americas and Caribbean, um, what we do is estimate the difference in average individual wealth uh, between the uh, countries that uh, that the slave trading countries and the um, and the countries in the Americas. Um, this measure is a little different and is a little less precise, I think, at, at what we're trying to get at. So I wanted to just take a moment to to, to give the reasons why we still think it's a useful measure. Um, I first want to recognize that that what we're measuring is uh, we're trying to get a measure of the economic harm caused by uh, slavery and that some of the wealth differentials that that we're measuring uh, could be caused by uh, non-slave related colonial practices. Um, and that there could be other reasons for this uh, wealth differential. I suspect that can go in, in, in a couple of directions, but to the extent that there wealth differentials associated with something other than uh, transatlantic chattel slavery, then our estimate on that, on that uh, dimension will be overestimating the, the wealth differential. On the other hand, because we're using average wealth in a country, we are not uh, taking into account uh, wealth differentials within the countries in the Americas. And to the extent that for some countries, as is very stark in the United States, but for other countries that there is color-based wealth differentials, we are not capturing those. And in that sense, we are probably underestimating um, uh, the quantum of wealth. The, the, The conceptual argument we're trying to, or or exercise we're trying to do here is um, answer the question of uh, what would the wealth differential be had there never been transatlantic chattel slavery? And our assumption is that there would be no wealth differential. We don't know that that is necessarily true. But given that this measure of economic harm for the period that it's applied um, is conservative in nature, as noted, it does not capture uh, some of the consumption uh, effects along the way, plus uh, it doesn't capture some of the other effects that I'm going to talk about in a second. Given the conservativeness of the nature, even if this uh, particular measure slightly overmeasures the, the wealth differential, um, we still think it's a good measure of, uh, of reparations, and there's more of a discussion of this in our, in our paper. So moving on to the estimates, in the United States, as I noted, we can look at the differential in individual wealth by race and see that the wealth gap, the difference in wealth between black and white uh, citizens in the United States is over $250,000. Um, and applying this number to the more than 41 million uh, black people in the United States gives us a wealth gap of about $11.5 dollars. Um, this is on par with other measures of the wealth gap uh, Slightly lower than the DRV and uh, Mullen. For the rest of the Americas, as I noted, we look at the gap in wealth between the um, uh, uh, living country and the destination country, and again, it comes up to just over 11 trillion dollars in total. Taking these two together um, uh, is a uh, almost uh, 23 trillion dollar. Uh, estimate and this is the number that we put forward for the harms from the post enslavement period. Um, uh, we have uh, again calculated it by country, uh, so that we have a full matrix. This is just a summary of it. And when this is combined with uh, the period of enslavement harm, um, uh, for our total estimate, we have a, a chart at the end that'll, that'll uh, talk about that. I did want to just acknowledge that. Um, one of the issues around the wealth gap analysis is that um, even if the wealth uh, was equalized today, that doesn't mean it would stay equalized going forward because all the same mechanisms of harm that have caused the wealth gap will continue. Will would continue without a fuller set of, of uh, repar- reparations or restorative justice um, here. So those additional harms. Um, uh, we, we go through a number in the paper, I have a few of them here, but it's just to say that uh, that the, the difference, um, the, the ongoing um, harms and legacy of, of slavery in the Americas is uh, much more than just the economic harms and that without addressing the full set of, uh, of, of disparities, um, uh, solving the economic problems would not be sufficient. And with that, I'll turn it back to Alberto to uh, try to put some of these staggering numbers. Into, um... Thank
9: you, Coleman. So Let's begin by summarizing. Uh, we've been throwing a lot of numbers around. It's probably a good idea to begin by looking at how everything adds up. Coleman just presented the summary numbers for the post-insolatement periods that uh, come at around 23 trillion dollars. We had talked about uh, roughly 78 trillion dollars split between gender-based violence, personal injury, loss of liberty and foregone earnings that make up the uh, harm during the period of slavery. If we add up everything together, we end up with a staggering number of just over 100 trillion dollars. we can apportion those $101 trillion across the destination countries for the enslaved and across the enslaving countries. Not surprisingly, if we look across the enslaving countries, we find that Great Britain, Portugal, and Spain carry uh, the uh, the largest total harms with close to $20 trillion each. The United States carries an even larger number, even though, as uh, it has been mentioned earlier today, the United States was not uh, as large a destination uh, country for for shipments of enslaved people. However, the number of people born into slavery in the United States was staggeringly larger than in other regions. And therefore, the number of enslaved people in the United States ends up being uh, substantial. So, what does this all mean? $100 trillion is, is uh, an, a, an astonishingly large number. And, of course, it can be, uh, depending on the interest rate assumption, like, uh, like most of our analyses, it will vary with this assumption. If we were to take 1.7%, which is a reasonable uh, approximation for inflation over the the past four centuries, we still have close to $40 trillion in damages. If we take a, a really minimum amount of interest, 1%, We still have $30 trillion, especially driven by the post-enslavement harm, which, as you can see in the table, does not depend on the interest rate. I want to make a a quick comment on that. The post-enslavement harm is, because of our methodological approach, measured in current dollars, and therefore doesn't need to be brought to the present using an interest rate, That is why you will see that across our different interest rate assumptions, it doesn't vary. Um, But what does this all mean? Whether we're talking about $30 trillion or $100 trillion, we need to put, put those numbers in context. Some previous analysis has gone down the route of comparing similar exercises, to the magnitude of the GDP of a particular country. So we could be looking at damages for US slavery and compare it to GDP, and we come to the conclusion that it's uh that the numbers are comparable, or for some calculations, uh sometimes even the calculation of reparations is larger than the GDP of that country. Well, that is a very good first approach when trying to grasp a sense of the magnitude of these numbers. There are a couple of things that need to be taken into account. These numbers measure damages that occurred to millions of people over hundreds of years. GDP is a measure of output for one year. Using the GDP of a country to grasp the scale of these numbers is hardly the appropriate measure. We would be comparing uh, hundreds of years of damage to one year of output, to put it bluntly. So what we do is instead of looking at a single year of output for the enslaving countries, we look at the cumulative GDP uh, in this particular case From 1950 to 2020. And here we see that the total reparations are relatively small to that total output. In particular, in the United States and in the United Kingdom, uh, we can see that this, uh, the green, which represents our calculation of reparations are relatively small. And even here we are calculating seven 70 years of output to hundreds of years of damage over millions of people. Another way of comparing these numbers is against the um, share of wealth, how, how they would stagger next to the total wealth of these countries. And here we see a lot of variation. For countries like Argentina, whose Actual number in in terms of dollars is not that large. We see that there would be a very large. They would represent a significant proportion of that country's wealth. While for the United States, that has the largest number in terms of the uh, reparations calculations in dollars, has a relatively small uh, portion as a portion of their wealth. So. It is with with these comparisons that we we want uh, to finish this presentation. We have shown you calculations that uh, bring together an an approach to assess the harm across the entirety of the Americas, using methodologies that had been used for uh, separate parts of the Americas or uh, for certain heads of damages, But here, we have combined everything together. The result is a very large number, uh, a very large number that remains very, very large even if we run robustness checks on our assumptions. But a large number that when we see it in the context of the depth of the harm, the breadth in terms of the number of people who were harmed and the duration of the harm in the hundreds of years over which it was inflicted begins to make sense. A number that large begins to make sense once you take into account the breadth, the depth, and the duration of the harm that was inflicted. Unless Coleman has something else to add at this point, we will be happy to take questions.
6: But
4: that, that's it for us.
5: Are there any any questions for the two presenters? If not, I would like to thank you both um,
7: very much. It's
5: so a very technical matter, but I believe you made the uh, difficult um, issues very understandable. And I congratulate you for that. So we'll now take the break and uh, resume at
4: at, um,
5: 1.30. P.M. for the first discussion panel. Mm-hmm. That was the 7:30 P.M. in in the Netherlands. Right so thank you both very much, and we I look forward to um, to keeping in touch with you because I'm sure there are the matters that we want to to address as we move forward. So there's once much, again, very grateful to you.
8: Thank you, and there's much
5: more work to be done. Thank you. Thank you
7: sir
4: Shikiro If I feel that part of the deal. Your turn What are you going to do with that? Shikiro uh, Yeah, be cool. there are, i be Dara, I know you will not like the rest me. of the band Try me Dara, I wouldn't do this Very well done Now oh, watch your son? No, Dara. You're part of us now. a
7: thank you. understand. do are you saying that the chance to blow up the national assembly? But that's crazy. We need to stop him. Mm-hmm. I still got some friends of the air oh I just have to make a. What do you mean? Uh guys. I think you might want to see the Be like
4: that. There's an explanation to all
5: of this. <sighs> I met this lovely girl. We did all of She ended up in my room. <laughs>
7: What you think?
4: Yes, but we must stop it. So he has a schematic to the building where Cineplex is going to celebrate his second time
7: victory. You guys are smart. We have resources and these we're going to find them. We're going to find
4: them. He is considered by many. The next president of the country, Johnny. I mean, Our crazy the building and access the local networks in Africa. Jonas, I want you to secure him and make sure no harm comes. Kenya, imagine you all secure the perimeter. Okay. How do we do that? With every security agency in the country at that Maryland. That's where the magical comes. I know the owners of the security and cage income. They will insert you large into their teams and get you in. That's it, just like that. Let's just say that just, just like you figure, they own Everybody from Nigeria, and know you say.
7: The There's no red dressing. It's mayonnaise and mustard and... Yes, it's Really? if i It's
4: already salty. I'm not the king. I
7: have to what that It's You can put that on yours. I'll have nothing. Yeah, my child. My child can come on To the safe. You have enough in there to take care of you and your daughter for the rest of the night. Just in case we don't come back. He want to end his death. He was a man that
4: stole my joy.
7: Sure. Right. What kind of justice establishment are you working worried? Shall you be so I have strict dietary requirements that must be ahead to. And pick up the stock march and be serving me. I demand real food. Okay? Now, right this minute I was a nice nice plate of seafood pasta without calamari. Do you understand? We don't have that in here. Now I'm sure that if you exercise that tiny muscle in your head called the brain, you can come up with a bowl of pasta.
4: Run along. Now.
7: What? Can you give your advice?
4: You see grief? It's energy. Power. Now you can choose to let it destroy you or you can take that same energy and destroy the person who's broken.
7: What would what, what I do? I could tell you where that is, where he's going to be. But that information will cost. <laughs>
4: No, oh, we don't. Now tell me
7: everything I need to know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.